our text this morning is Matthew 12. Um, let's read verses. Let me get there. Twenty-two through thirty-two. Matthew twelve, twenty-two through thirty-two. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then... The kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Again, this is the word of God for the people of God, and thanks be to God. Pray with me. Spirit of the living God, we trust in you. For it is by your power that Christ has proclaimed the gospel. It is by your power that he heals the demon oppressed. And it is by that same power we have been resurrected from the dead. And Spirit of God, by the same power, we ask that you would teach us by the grace of our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So we get to sort of a new section uh, in Matthew 12. And the discourse of this section runs really from 22 to the end of chapter 12. And I I had all the point starting this week to get halfway through that section, which would take us to 37. Um, But 
it w- by the spirit of wisdom and also in God's humbling me, he said, let's not try that. So we're, we're actually only going to get to verse 30, and some of you may say, how humble are you? Because that's quite a bit. So, uh, Lord willing, by his grace, we will um, be edified by this text this morning and hopefully be able to come back next Lord's Day and attach uh, what we took this week and bring it into next week. But the focus of this week is um, it is very broad. It is the focus of what we've actually been talking about in Sunday school, eschatology. Okay, when we think and just make sure we all know what that word means, it's just it, it literally just means uh, the study of the last things, the last things. Okay, and we we have around us in culture the idea of studying eschatology. It, it has us focused like a like a um, like a scope. On a rifle, focused in at a far distant point, or maybe not so far distant, but at a distant point, and where we're only touching upon a piece of it. But here's the thing about the study of the of the last things. That came into being, the study of last things came into being in Genesis 3. When God declared the triumph of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent, he then brought in eschatology. Because what we're seeing in throughout the scripture is the fulfillment, the the culmination of that promise in Genesis 3 and then it bringing us all back to the end, to the pinpoint of Revelation 22. Now, Matthew, when we think about eschatology or end times, we do have certain places in Scripture that we always think about. But what I want you to understand is the book of Matthew is a book of eschatology. Um, and I, I've been trying to hint at it over since we got back into it in Matthew 8. And as we are ending this chapter, it really begins to explode. And as we get into chapter 13, and especially the parables of the kingdom, it really explodes. And as we go further into Matthew, it gets even bigger and bigger and bigger. All right. And so what I hope today, as we look at these verses is that you grasp a better understanding that eschatology isn't just the finale, but it is, it's what's taking place from the first advent of Jesus to the second advent of Jesus. And so what, am I mean, what do I mean by that? The first advent of Jesus being his birth, or going a little bit further than that, the conception to the finale or the last advent, his actual return. Eschatology is taking place. The things of the last last days or last things or latter days span that whole time frame. 
And there are things about Christ, there are things about the kingdom, there are things about the gospel, there are things about Satan and his kingdom that we see in Matthew that broaden our view of eschatology and broaden our view of what God is doing. Okay? So let's, let's, let's look at this. Let's think about this. Let's start at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Now, I didn't write, I didn't even think about this, but what Jesus is doing when he heals someone like that is he's giving a taste of what it will be like at the very end, right? He's giving a taste of what no, uh, uh, help me, Revelation 21 no more sin, no more pain, no more tear. Like this, he's giving them a taste of his eternal reign and what that will be like. But, it, but so what does he do? He, he uh, by his power, uh, heals this demon-oppressed man, which we would assume is, 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 is by his power exercising or removing uh, the demon from the man, but it was more than that. It, it also was uh, giving him speech and, and sight. He healed him, and the man spoke and saw. So this brings about a question. Look at verse 22. A question comes about, and all the people were amazed and said, here's the question, can this be the son of David? So as we've noted in Matthew, we noted in all of Scripture, but, but as we think about Matthew, this is a common theme that's going to be building to Matthew 18, I think. Who is this man? Right? And they're asking this question. Their response, remember in, uh, was it 10 or 11, the response to the revelation? Their response to this revelation of this power is, can this be the son of David? So why that question? What prompted their thinking to go that way? Well, the phrase son of David in the Old Testament, in the mind of a first century Jew, brought about thoughts of fulfillment and prophecy and promise uh, that when they would see the son of David, that there would be an eternal ruler or an eternal reign of God on earth through the line of David. You get that from 2 Samuel 7 as God promises in, the, in his covenant with David and your house, David, and your kingdom hear the word house, hear the word kingdom, shall be made sure for how long? Forever. Before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And it, if you go and look at that covenant, he's speaking about that happening through a son of David. Right? So we see we see power we see um, we see authority in this healing of this demon oppressed man we see almost probably nostalgia 
provoked in the Jews who know of what's to come based off the Old Testament prophecies, perhaps the stories and the teachings that they've heard from their parents, their grandparents. Uh, there is, there's this arousal of eschatological thinking because they think eschatologically or at, at the end because they know that when this kingdom comes... They will be towards the end. And of this kingdom, there will be no end. Uh, of my, my, One of the commentaries I look at has this statement. The words son of David or king and David would invoke a, a, a deep nostalgia and this eschatological hope for a first century Jew. M- Matthew, he, he then makes the royal theme explicit. And he's called him king and Messiah, son of David. He's David's royal authority that was lost in the Old Testament, lost from the Babylonian exile, and now is going to be reestablished and gained because the great David has a greater son. And they're like, hey, is this the son of David? Is it time? Is the end near? But we connect that to what's another title that we've heard over and over again in Matthew thus far. Someone make me proud. Similar to the son of David. Son of man. Son of man. So son of David, probably in the mind of a Jew, really invokes the thought of king of Israel. Right? And what what did, how did they, how did they humiliate Jesus. Crown of thorns and what they put over the cross, king of the Jews. What did they ask him at the council, at his trial? Are you the king of the Jews? Someone did at some point in one of his trials. Are you the king of the Jews? And that, that, that was right way of thinking because he was the son of David, is the son of David. But what about the son of man? If the son of David might invoke the idea of being the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, the son of man establishes that his rule and authority goes beyond Israel. What's been established as the authority and kingdom of the son of man? Daniel chapter 7, right? It says this, and it is to him, the son of man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, okay? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion or his rule is an everlasting dominion and rule which shall not pass away in his kingdom and is a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And I think in Daniel 12, I don't know, maybe Daniel 2, Daniel something like that. It speaks of how this kingdom that is coming will take out. All the kingdoms of the world. And so the the authority given to the son of David to be the king over Israel doesn't stop there. But is coming into the world. He's not just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of kings. Do we understand? So we know and see what is taking place. And that's an eschatological reality of the king of kings because what happens before the king of kings? Philippians 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
to the king of the kings, to the Lord Jesus. The Jews knew this was going to happen. They had some sort of idea that there was this eschatological end, this eternal this eternal kingdom, this eternal reign that was to take place over the nations, nations. And Israel would receive great blessing. It was going to be a good thing for Israel. There's, there's passages like this when it pertains to what, what goodness will come or how it will be for Israel in this time. It says, I believe it was in Isaiah, I didn't get the chapter, foreigners shall build up your walls. Speaking of Israel, foreigners shall build up your walls and the, the kings of foreigners shall minister to you or serve you. It's not a bad deal. Your gates shall be open continually. Now, is that a normal thing for Israel? Absolutely not. Their gates were closed because they're coming at them. Your gates shall be open continually that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations and their kings led in procession. They're like, hey, is this the son of David? This is going to be good. They know this is what's promised. This is what's going to happen. All of these things. But maybe they don't have it quite so right in their minds. Now, we see the question, and then we get to the accusation. There's an accusation. So how, how do the Pharisees respond to this question? Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said... It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now, not, not a lot here to go over, but I do want to remind you of their motivation. Look back at verse 14. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We didn't really get into this, but we, we, we saw it. Verse 14. What's, what's stirring up within the Pharisees at this moment? Verse 14 of chapter 12. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. They're operating out of hatred. Jealousy. Amen. They, they, and here's something we're going to come back to next week, but a point that must be made, but we'll touch more back on it next week when we look at the, uh, uh, the unpardonable sin. What have they done that they might not have realized that they've done? The Pharisees, that is. They've acknowledged his power. They've acknowledged that he is casting out demons. What did Nicodemus say to Jesus in that garden at night? We know, we know that you're from God. You know what Nicodemus was? A Pharisee. They knew what was happening. But yet, here, hatred overcome the truth of who Christ was. So they're acting out of this hatred, acknowledging his... It is only by, the, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. He's acknowledging it. Who's Beelzebul? Well, you, you can just look at the context. You could do a word study and think about it all that way. But if you just keep reading... You understand who Beelzebul is. Um, we see later that uh, Satan is named. Or just his uh, title, the Prince of Demons. 
they're, they're, they're equating the power that's operating in Jesus to Satan. He's casting out demons by Satan. Straightforward. Not, not too much to it. So that's the accusation. And then in verses 25 through, well, 37, we get an education. And the education from Christ begins with a, a, a teaching in logic. Not real theological here. Just pretty straightforward reasoning. Look what he says in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. He then goes on and says in verse 26, If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So the accusation itself doesn't make any sense. Because demons are under the realm, authority, I would even say kingdom of Satan. And Jesus says, if Satan is to come against himself, his, here's the interesting word he uses in verse 26, Satan's kingdom cannot stand. Verse 26 if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? We can't overlook that, that, those two words, his kingdom. That's very interesting and not a thing that Christians like to think about. That Satan, when we say of kingdom, we're not talking about a plot of land. When the Bible talks about kingdom, we're talking about rule and reign, authority, Back to the accusation. These demons are acting under the authority of their king, Satan. They're doing the bidding of their master as they possess, oppress, and harass. So for Satan to go and cast them out would be for Satan to act against himself. If you're going to watch the Super Bowl tonight, it'd be really weird on third and four. The wide receivers for Kansas City come and line up as linebackers with the 49ers. What would they be doing? It would be fighting against themselves. What would be the outcome of that game? They would lose. No kingdom, no team, no house, no church can stand if it's divided against itself. Kingdom, church, nothing. It is a universal principle. And I think we should consider that, families, in our homes. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Men, men, when we act as husbands and fathers, as, as providers and protectors, when we act out of our self-interest, even in doing the things we're supposed to do, if we are, if our work for providing for our families is led by 
our self-interest, we're doing the opposite of what we're called to do. We've turned against our own house. If our hobbies, men, our interests are self-driven and divide us and turn us against our family, it will not be pretty. And we could take the same reality and apply it to a church. But women, uh, wives, if you're unwilling to submit to your husband as we're were called to do throughout the scriptures. You have divided the family, the home, against itself, and it cannot stand. So we must understand that that is a universal principle. That is a principle that comes out of the truth of God's creation. And we must think about it in all areas of life, of our life. Now, that was a quick Education and logic and reasoning. But then Jesus wants to give them an education in eschatology. And this comes in verses 28, 29, and 30. Let's read it as a whole. Verse 28, 29, and 30. But if it is by the Spirit of God, as opposed to Satan, right? If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you? Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed they may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, if you're familiar with eschatological language, you realize that it is scattered all throughout those one, two, three verses. Kingdom, bind, plunder, gather, scatter. It's all there. Now, in a sense, Jesus is actually responding to the original question. What was the original question? Are you the son of David? By by his statement in verse 28... And declaring that not only does he not do these acts by Satan, he does them by the Spirit of God. Hoping to get their attention and get them thinking about Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 42, which was spoken earlier in this chapter in verses 18 19, 20, and 21. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And so, yes, in his own way, as Jesus does, he says, I am the son of David. The king is here and the kingdom has come. The king is here, and the kingdom has come. Uh, How does Jesus begin his ministry? With those very words, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. He says that in Matthew 4 and Mark 1. 
the, the, you know what he's declaring? The last days are upon you. I am he. The time is fulfilled, which is what he says in Mark 1, verse 15. He's pointing them back to the Old Testament, just like we said. And then Isaiah 61, which is quoted in Luke 4, he not just says, this, not just says I will put my spirit upon him, but Jesus declares the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed. He has the power of the spirit of God. He has the authority of the king of Israel and of the son of man. He's the king above all kings. And the question is, what will you do with him? But also the question might be, what will he do with all of this authority and all of this power? Verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Verse 29 is a metaphor. It's a little bitty parable. So when you have a parable or a metaphor, you have to be careful, but you can connect the the, the meaning. Who's the strong man in verse 29? Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Satan. Right? What is the house? Satan's kingdom. There's someone else in the parable. The one who enters the strong man's house. Who is he? Jesus. Jesus. But he says he didn't just enter the house, but he binds the strong man. Now, just so we we understand the word bind, uh, John the Baptist was bound up when he was imprisoned by Herod. The donkey that Jesus rode on was first bound up and tied down before they were able to bring it to him. When we say bind, we mean to bind, to tie up, to keep still. Now, a couple things are illustrated in this. Number one, He illustrates again that the work done to Satan is coming from outside of the kingdom of Satan. He's just emphasizing again. Okay, this cannot be Satan because someone has entered into his house. He cannot be against himself. But since the one who comes in and binds the strong man, what can we conclude about the one who comes in to bind the strong man? He's stronger than the strong man. And all the commentaries that I, well, not all the commentaries, but the majority of the commentaries I looked at for this passage, they quoted that there's Jewish apocalyptic literature that points to the binding of Satan as a symbol of the Messianic age. So when Jesus said this little bit of parable, he was touching on what they were thinking or what they were hoping for. That as their Messiah would come, he would bind Satan. And this would be the sign of the latter days. And it's probably familiar language with us as well. 
when we say Jewish ap- uh, apocalyptic literature, we're talking about Jewish literature that looks towards the end. And we read already in Revelation 20 that Christian eschatological literature talks about a binding of Satan. We read that in Revelation 20. And so when we're looking in the future at an end times calendar and we're waiting for God to bind Satan towards the end have we missed have we missed it already have have we overlooked the work of Christ in his binding Satan the kingdom of God is plundering the kingdom of Satan in Matthew 12 and today Christ in his Giving this parable has shown that he is binding Satan, that his kingdom could plunder the kingdom of Satan. This began, well, I thought it began in the wilderness. What happened in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan? He was tempted. He was tempted in the wilderness in contrast to the temptation of Adam in the garden. He was tempted. Let me read to you what what, J, what, what Satan says to Jesus from Luke. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. In the garden, God gave man a mandate to rule, have dominion over creation, right? Rule and reign over my creation is what God told Adam. Dominion. But when we come out of Genesis 3 and read the rest of the Bible, we see another ruler over the earth. Satan, let me use some phrases that you might be familiar with. The prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2. Paul calls him the God of this world. Jesus refers to him. In John 12, and we'll look at it in a little while, the ruler of this world. And in 1 John, in his epistle, he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know what it says in Romans 5? That sin and death entered the world, and it came from Adam, and from Adam, death reigned, ruled, and has ruled all of uh, mankind. Death reigned to be king, to rule. It has ruled from one man's trespass. Who has the power of death? Hebrews 2 tells us 
that it's the devil. As Satan rules on the earth, what is he doing? How is he reigning? What I want you to understand that you don't underestimate this satanic kingdom, its rule and its reach. Here's what we know of that rule and reach. It has enslaved by his power over death mankind under the fear of death, Hebrews 2. It has blinded mankind's minds through the sin of corruption, 2 Corinthians 4. It has deceived the nations, the world. It's deceived the nations, the world, to the point that mankind's sin nature causes man to follow Satan. Ephesians 2. You were once dead in your sin, following the prince of the power of the air. So how is Jesus binding Satan? When did it begin? Was it in the wilderness when he was tempted? But I want us to be clear. Our text is telling us that at some point, Christ has bound Satan. And I... I, I, I mold over this over and over and over again. What is going on here? What's taking place? I want you to look at two passages with me. When did this happen? Go to Romans 6 and Hebrews 2. Romans 6 and Hebrews 2. As I was reading, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We get to verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Okay, it's all straightforward. Next phrase. Death no longer has dominion over him. I did a double take there. Death no longer has dominion over who? Jesus. That's who we're talking about. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. I was flabbergasted. Do you know why? Because death had dominion over Christ. Death no longer has dominion over him means that he once did. The word dominion there in Romans 6 is curio. It's the verb form of curios, which is the name we call Jesus, Lord 
Thomas calls Jesus my Kyrios and my God. And Romans 6 says that death had lord, lordship, authority, dominion, rule over Christ. And I'm thinking, how is this possible? Hebrews 2. Turn to Hebrews 2. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is Satan, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When did Jesus enter the house of the strong man? In the womb of Mary. When he took on flesh, he subjected himself to the dominion of Satan and put himself in the path of death. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The Son of God subjected himself to the dominion of Satan, the one who has the power of death, entering into his kingdom. But as you walk through Matthew, what do you see? You see declaration over death and sin and Satan. You see healings. You see declaring forgiveness. You see raising the dead. You see uh, exercising uh, of demons out of the demon-oppressed men and women. It is by the Spirit of God that God came into this world clothed in flesh conceived in the womb as he is coming forth, living a life by the power of God, overcoming, overthrowing, plundering in the realm, the kingdom of Satan. Jesus says it this way in John 12, and I'm wrapping up here. As Jesus has just experienced his triumphal entry and looks dead in the face the cross that lay before him in just a few days, he says in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to, to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. When, when a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Hear these words. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's bound. He's cast out. The nations no longer deceived. And now the son of man, the son of David, has subjected himself to the greatest power that Satan had. And he took it and turned it back upon him. Death, where is your sting? And as he is lifted up, the Son of Man, he will draw all people to himself. All people, all nations, and all tribes in a world that was ruled and reigned by Satan himself. But what does he say? No more. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Which, which points you to the end of Matthew. What's the end of Matthew say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All. Where? Everywhere. So go therefore and make disciples and plunder the kingdom of Satan. Make disciples of all the nations all throughout the world. What's once he reigned is now mine. The nations are the inheritance of the Lord. Go and make disciples, marking them out as mine, teaching them no longer to follow the prince of the power of the air, but to follow the son of the living God, to follow the savior of the world. Teach them to observe and keep my commandments and to surrender to their new king. But then we get in the back of our mind, but wait, wait. Hasn't the God of this world blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ? Yeah. But what did Bartimaeus cry out? Oh, but wait, what was Bartimaeus's problem? He was blind. And who did he cry out to when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was near? Jesus? Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stand in the synagogue with Isaiah opened up. 
And he read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was given to him. He enrolled it and found the place where it was. And he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And to recover the sight of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them. Today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, they asked a question. Is this not the son of Joseph? It's the son of David. As the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth throughout this world, light and the darkness, the blind may see because the stronger man has entered the house. And then he says in verse 30, Hear closely. Whoever is not with me is against me. No neutrality. You're in the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of the Son of David. And we'll close our text there. But to Sort of come back full circle and to think about the broadness of eschatology. We have tendencies, and I'll just close with these few sentences. We have a tendency when it comes to eschatology to get caught up in topics. We might... we. We had the discussion this morning about the tribulation. There are discussions about what's that going to look like? How's it going to be? Or the question we asked this morning, does Christ return pre, mid, or post-tribulation? But when you've got your eyes focused on a point away from you, you tend to miss that which is standing right in front of you. Words like this come to mind. Jesus says, I have said to you these things, that in me you may have peace. Why? In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
where Paul tells the church at Rome, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. As you walk the life following Christ today, the world will hate you as it hated him. And you will face tribulation and persecution. And if your, if your study of the Bible is only about that time frame in the distance and you miss how you are to walk today, don't worry about what's going to happen there. Actually, you might want to worry what's going to happen there. Questions, who's the Antichrist? If someone asks me that, I'll just tell you, I'm going to shut you down instantly. Here's what we need to know from Scripture about the Antichrist. Children, it is the last hour, John says to his audience. It is the last hour. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. It is the last hour. It, we, we are in the latter days. We are waiting the return of the king. But he says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. So here's what you have to know. There are Antichrists now that you must be aware of, that you must be knowledgeable of, that you must avoid. But if all you are concerned is what is the number that tells you who the Antichrist is or what is the person or what is the system. No, no, no. There is Antichrist now. And if you don't be careful, you'll get swept up by the Antichrist now. Paul tells the Thessalonians, here's the hope. And, and Brother Dan did this so well when he just went through 1 Thessalonians. The lawless one, guess what? He'll be revealed. And you'll be like, when you sit back and like, Oh, okay. I was wrong. We were all wrong. God will reveal the lawless one, but even better, he says, and the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And finally, don't worry about the battle of Armageddon. What countries will come from what places? Or who's going to team with who? Here's what I want you to know now. Christian, the battle has already begun. Actually, the glorious news, and we'll finish it here. The glorious news of all of this is that the battle has been won. And guess what we're doing? We're just taking the spoil. We're just plundering the house. Satan's bound. He's tied up. And we just come in and reap the reward of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. As David, David cut the head off of Goliath, stood upon it, he said, go get the Philistines. You know what the Philistines were doing? They tucked tail and was running. And Israel followed up behind them and plundered them, took them. Because the, the battle had already been won as David stood upon the head of Goliath. Christ stands upon the head. It will crush his head. It has been crushed.
So let us plunder the kingdom of Satan. Let's just start by loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we will take so much from the house of Satan if we start there. You're either for him or against him. I'm going to be for the one who has already won. Let's pray to our Lord.